0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry.
0: And I'm Tracy V. Wilson.
1: Uh, and it's no secret that we love a good con man story. We uh, really loved our Baron of Arizona episode. Uh, and today's topic is right in that vein. And the uh, gentleman we're going to talk about is completely larger than life. He is such a fascinating creature. And he is famous for a con of simply epic proportions. where He sold a large, iconic structure that he did not own. Uh, but we'll get to that. I don't want to spit that out right out of the gate because we'll get there and... Uh, you If you know anything about him, you have already seen that, because that's often the thing that defines him uh, when he's talked about in historical articles. So first, we're going to talk about who this gentleman was, and kind of his
0: early beginnings before we get into his life of conning people. So that person we are talking about today is Victor Lustig, and he was actually born Robert V. Miller in Bohemia, and that's now known as the Czech Republic. He was born January 4th, 1890, and he was one of several children... Who was born to the mayor of the tiny, tiny town of Hostenay, and while Lustig was not his true name, it's the one he most commonly used, and that's how it's reported. So we're just going to call him that instead of calling him Miller. Uh, Yeah,
1: we'll read one text, a a little news article where they refer to him as Robert Miller, but beyond that, and we'll use their their uh, naming convention. But beyond that, we're going to go by Lustig. And even as a child, he was incredibly precocious. And as he grew into adulthood, his proclivity for trouble really grew with him. And he was an extremely smart man and he had a natural talent for language and he was fluent in Czech, German, French, Italian and English.
0: He attended the University of Paris, but it was not long into his higher education before he was spending way more time gambling at games of chance than he was hitting the books. During his college years, he also got a scar from a jealous man in a fight over a girl. And this would become his identifying mark later in life.
1: And after he left school, uh, he did not finish. He just took off. Lustig began traveling throughout Europe under a number of aliases. And all the while, he was committing petty crimes to support himself and kind of duping people out of their money. Uh, and it's during this period that he first assumed the persona of Victor Lustig, which became, as we said, his favorite.
0: He started introducing himself as a count and traveling around on cruise ships. So he would take advantage of the wealthy passengers and then gamble with the less wealthy ones.
1: Yeah, he basically just saw cruise ships as a huge cash cow on the water. Uh, and a con that he worked on these trips was built around these small mahogany boxes, which... You know, it was basically just a small box. It would have a slit cut on either end. Uh, and additionally, one side of each box, he would just load up with mechanical bits. So it would have levers and knobs and buttons and look very um, complicated and really mechanically uh, engineered. And he would claim that this complex looking box that he was showing people, because he would only show one at a time, was in fact a money duplicator.
0: He had a lot of these boxes, but he only ever revealed one at a time when he was working a con. And so he would show the victim a $100 bill sticking out of one side of it, and there would be a blank piece of paper sticking out of the other side. He would turn some knobs and throw some switches, and after a while, a second $100 bill, which had been hidden in the box the whole time, would come out.
1: Yeah, so it would look like that blank piece of paper had then been printed on and become a $100 bill. And of course, marks that were shown this amazing piece of machinery wanted money duplicating boxes of their own. And so Lustig would often entertain multiple interested parties, and he would kind of uh seed the situation so he would get these people to bid against each other and drive the price up. And because he used this con on pleasure cruises... Uh This is so smart. He would, you know, kind of keep this bidding going and, and keep people interested. And then finally, near the end of the trip, he would finally accept one of the offers, like the highest bidder, and hand over the box. And then by the time the ruse was revealed, he had disembarked and vanished. They were out of their money and he was gone and on to his next adventure.
0: World War I put an end to pleasure cruising for a while, and so that put an end also to Count Lustick's source of income. He didn't really have many prospects and no interest at all in taking on a real job, so he decided to set out for the United States.
1: And before we get into his uh, first little adventure in the U.S., let's have a word from a sponsor. We're going to go back to the world of... A spectacular con man, Victor Lustig. So heading into the 1920s, um, Lustig really started to become more and more interested in bigger cons. Uh, so in 1922, he was in Missouri. And he, at this point, he was going by the name of Robert Duval. And Lustig had scoped out this piece of property, which was a ranch that had been repossessed by the bank. And he decided that it would become a central element in this plan he had to pull one over on the American Savings Bank.
0: He made the bank an offer on the ranch of $22,000 in Liberty Bonds. He also asked them to trade cash for an additional $10,000 worth of war bonds. And when this exchange of money was made, he did kind of a sleight of hand and replaced the envelopes holding the cash and the bonds with two identical but worthless envelopes. And after the
1: envelopes were exchanged and the con man had both the bonds and the cash in hand, Lustig, of course, made a run for it. And he got as far as Kansas City before he was arrested. But he was so completely imbued with this gift of gab and this sort of, you know, ability to just disarm people and convince them of complete falsehoods. He actually managed to talk his way out of this particular kettle of hot water and go free. And we don't have the details on how that took place. Tracy was theorizing when we were talking about it that probably any lawmen involved were too embarrassed to really recount the full episode <laughs> after the fact. Uh, but this will not be the first time he talks himself out of trouble.
0: He went back to Europe and in 1925, he was once again running cons in Paris. At this point, it was more than 25 years after the Paris Exposition, which was when the Eiffel Tower had been built. This iconic structure had become kind of a problem for the city. It cost a lot to keep it up, and there weren't a lot of funds to maintain the tower. They had plans to maybe move it, but that plan had fallen through, and it was kind of becoming run down and unloved. There were a lot of people, both in the public and among the officials, who just wanted to have the whole thing removed or torn down and be done with it.
1: As a brief aside, that sort of breaks my heart, like thinking about the possibility that the Eiffel Tower could have been torn down. Uh, but of course, when Lustig heard of these problems surrounding the tower, it said that he read a news article detailing all of the, the problems with keeping it, uh, standing in Paris, he concocted this plan that he would profit from this sort of uh, source of drama amongst the Parisian people. And so he assumed yet another identity. This time he posed as deputy director general of the Ministère de Post et
0: Telegraph. Using these new faux credentials, he set himself up at the Hotel de Crillon and he arranged to meet with scrap metal dealers to pitch this idea of them taking the Eiffel Tower off Paris's hands. To cover his tracks, he explained to the potential buyers that they had to keep it all on the down low initially because city officials were naturally very afraid that the citizens of Paris were going to be angry if they knew their tower might just go to a scrap heap. He demanded absolute discretion from anyone who expressed interest. And this
1: plan sounded quite good indeed to one of the scrap metal dealers, whose name uh, was André Poisson. And Poisson was not a Paris native, uh, which was part of what made him a perfect mark. I think, uh, in likelihood, Lustig saw him as a little bit of a... um you know, a, a country bumpkin, even though he was really an accomplished businessman. Uh, he definitely knew the scrap industry and he had money, but he was not especially wily. And to further bait the hook, Lustig, uh, did this little interesting move where he kind of intimated to Poisson that he was just a lowly government official and he didn't make much money. And he kind of started hinting that his big decision on which scrap dealer should get this deal was going to hinge on a bribe of some sort.
0: This faux bribe request really legitimized Lustig Le in Poisson's eyes. Clearly, this was a legitimate bureaucrat if he was hinting around that he should be bribed. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Interesting thing that that's how you convince someone that you're the real deal is by doing nefarious things. But it worked. Uh, and eventually, Poisson put down a cash deposit with Lustig of about $70,000, which is you'll see it broken down uh, in Descriptions of the situation of like 20,000 was sort of t- for the bribe to get Lustig's favor, and 50,000 was like the guarantee that he would be the one to get uh, the rights to tear down the Eiffel Tower. And at this point, with $70,000 in hand, Lustig left. He had headed to Austria. And Poisson, for his part, went to city officials because at this point he had been awarded the contract to the best of his knowledge and he wanted to arrange the tearing down of the famous structure. And when he went to discuss this matter, he was met with blank stares and confused faces. Uh, and he eventually realized, of course, that he had been duped. Uh, and he was terribly embarrassed. So much so that he refused to get the police involved and to press charges against Lustig. He just wanted the whole thing to go away. And Victor Lustig, for his part, from Austria, was watching the papers, waiting to hear news about this deception being revealed. But when nothing broke, he slowly realized that Poisson had... Not wanted this to go public and that he was
0: basically in the clear. So even though he had already sold the Eiffel Tower once and that was quite a feat, he loved that con so much that he decided to do it again a few weeks later. This time he suspected that police had been talking to his new Mark and that he just got out of Paris, out of France, and out of Europe entirely to avoid being detained.
1: Yeah, he got cold feet thinking he was never going to get that lucky two times in a row after he had uh, kind of started the wheels in motion. And uh, this is how he ended up back in the United States in 1926, where he launched yet another series of money box cons.
0: This time, he contracted a New York carpenter to make him special boxes. And he also added some other layers to the con. He would tell his mark that the replicator took six hours to reproduce a bill. This gave the target some time to wax rhapsodic about what they would do with the machine if indeed they were to get it.
1: Yeah, so he kind of gave them time to daydream about all of the money that they could potentially make. Uh, and after the six hours had passed, as Lustig and his Mark waited together, they he stuck with them through the whole time, the second bill would be produced, just as it had been in his con on the cruise ships. And Lustig would then encourage Marks to take both of the bills to a bank to have them verified as legal tender.
0: So once the bank verified, yes, this two bills are legitimate, the Mark would be willing to pay a tidy sum for the box. And in the six hours that they would spend waiting for their next bill, Victor Lustig had plenty of time to vanish into thin air. Uh, and this con came to be known as the Romanian box scheme.
1: And according to New York police, one group of Marks pooled their money to purchase one of the boxes for a staggering $46,000.
0: In one incident... Victor Lustick managed to fleece a Texas sheriff and tax collector for $123,000 using the money box scheme. That money should have gone to municipal taxes. Once the Texan sheriff cornered him in Chicago, Lustick returned the money and simultaneously convinced him that it was his fault for not using the duplicator correctly.
1: Again, just a master of convincing people of things. Uh, the con man took dozens of new aliases as he cycled through this money box con over and over. And he was actually arrested many, many times in the process. And in more than 40 recorded cases, he either talked his way out of the charges entirely or he escaped from jail before going to trial and just vanished into thin air.
0: Among his most brazen cons, he swindled Al Capone out of $50,000 and he promised to repay the loan twofold in two months. When it was time to pay up, Lustig only gave back $50,000, and he blamed a scheme gone wrong for the forfeit of the other 50000 But allegedly, Capone was quite impressed with his stand-up nature, so much so that he gave him $5,000. And it's said that Capone, who was known for both his pride and his temper, was never told that he had been deceived in this matter by the people who knew about it.
1: Yeah, basically, uh the thing here is that Lustig was kind of long conning him. He never had intention to do anything with the $50,000. He just socked it away somewhere until the time had passed. Somehow knowing that he would get this $5,000 or some monetary compensation just for being so darn honest. Just kind of fascinating, uh, especially from Al Capone.
0: So Lustig continued these cons for years. And then in 1930, he got into counterfeiting. He joined up with a chemist and the pair of them launched this full tilt counterfeiting operation, eventually producing more than $100,000 in high quality fake bills every month.
1: Yeah, their uh, faux money was, uh, by all accounts, really quite good, like where they would even, you know, imitate sort of the fibers that run through uh, actual currency to a degree that it was really pretty hard to discern that from uh, the real deal. And his skill at producing fake money, along with his partner, unfortunately gained the attention of the Secret Service. Uh, they eventually assembled a special task force to identify the source of this sudden influx of counterfeit money into the economy.
0: Because $100,000 a month is a lot. Their investigation led to the arrest of a Texas lawman passing fake bills in New Orleans. And if you're wondering, yes... It is the same Texas lawman that Lustig had returned money to earlier in this story. That money was at least in part not the real deal. The sheriff was more than happy to cooperate with the Secret Service to provide all the info he had on Lustig, uh, although he was still in trouble for having used taxpayer money to pay Lustig for the money box in the first place. Yeah, it didn't get him out of hot water, but
1: I think at that point he felt so wronged and angry about the whole thing that he was like, I will give you every piece of information I can. <laughs> Please get this guy. Uh And once Lustig was identified as a suspect, the Secret Service tailed him for more than seven months. And finally, in 1935, he was arrested in New York after his girlfriend actually tipped off police. She was in a little bit of a jealous rage over the fact that Lustig had had a dalliance with another woman who was allegedly the girlfriend of the chemist that he was doing business with.
0: Agents described his demeanor as poised and serene throughout his arrest. And when they found a key in the pocket of his coat and questioned him about what it opened, he met their questions with polite shrugs and silence. The key,
1: it was eventually discovered, opened a locker at the Times Square subway station. Uh, The locker search yielded more than $50,000 in counterfeit cash, as well as the plates that had been used to print it. And so Lustig was imprisoned at the federal detention house of New York City.
0: The count, as his captors liked to call him, was scheduled for trial on September 2nd, 1935. But he was unable to attend due to having escaped. He tied his bedsheets together into a rope and escaped out a window. And he pretended to wash the windows of the floors below as he rappelled down the building. This is very... Impressive
1: to me. It it is. It's quite ingenious. Um, and the Chicago Tribune has an account of the escape, uh, which is dated on September second, and it says the escape actually happened on the first. And it says, quote, "Mildly interested street loungers today watched Robert V. Miller, reputed international swindler, slip down a rope of bed sheets and flee from the federal detention prison." Miller, whom police listed in an arrest record in many American cities and several European countries, had been held under $50,000 bail since uh, arrested May 13th on a charge of possessing counterfeit money and plates. Prison officials did not know of Miller's escape until a witness told them. Under various names, police said Miller has been arrested in Los Angeles, Chicago, Detroit, Indianapolis, Oklahoma City, St. Louis, and Miami, frequently on confidence game charges.
0: So the federal house of detention in 1935, possibly the least secure holding facility in the United States.
1: And that was kind of like the big thing around it is that it was allegedly very difficult to escape from there. But he managed it just fine.
0: Like dude, he, uh, he climbed out a window on bedsheets. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. That yeah. is the stereotypical method of escape. It's like the kind of thing that comes right out of a Coen Brothers film and you can't
0: believe that it could ever possibly work. But it did work in this case. It's unbelievable. So there was an all-hands manhunt, and Victor Lustig was recaptured several weeks later in Pittsburgh. At the end of 1935, his case finally went to trial, with proceedings beginning on December 5th. The trial concluded with a guilty sentence and 15 years in prison as punishment, because he had also escaped while awaiting trial. An additional five years were tacked on to the sentence, bringing it to around 20
1: Yes, and he did serve time. Uh, he did not escape again. But 12 years into his sentence, on March 11th of 1947, Victor Lustig died in prison at Alcatraz at the age of 57. And what's interesting is that even though he was sort of this, you know, international con man of some renown, his passing did not make news at the time. And nobody even really knew about it until his brother mentioned it to a paper two years later. Uh, but up to that point, no one even knew that the Count had died. So he almost kind of did yet another, like, vanish into thin air thing with his death in that he just died quietly and no one knew.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm also kind of inwardly laughing at the fact that he had so many daring and and uh, obvious escapes, but did not also escape from Alcatraz.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that would have been like the cherry on top of the legend Sunday of yeah. Victor Lustig, but yes, no, so you he have... did not escape
0: sold the Eiffel Tower, and also escaped from Alcatraz. So accounts really differ as to his cause of death. One paper reported that it was a brain tumor, and others said it was complications of pneumonia. There's not really clear agreement on that. Yeah, especially because they were
1: reporting it two years after the fact. It kind of left the door open for a lot of speculation.
0: Presumably there's a death certificate somewhere, maybe. But, you know, it may be not attentively filled out. <laughs> and what's
1: interesting, too, is that for years after his death, he kind of had this legacy in that uh Secret Service agents were reporting that his counterfeit bills would occasionally surface. Or sometimes they would even be brought to the Secret Service by people who kind of suspected it might be uh, a, a listic bill.
0: So there's a list of 10 rules for aspiring conmen That's often attributed to Victor Lustig, although we don't really have clear evidence that that attribution is correct. But even so, we're going to tell you what they are. Number one is be a patient listener. This is more important than fast talking. Number two is never look bored. Number three is wait for the other person to reveal their political opinions, then agree with them.
1: Number four, very similar. Let the other person reveal their religious views and then have
0: the same ones. Number five, hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other fellow shows a strong interest. Yeah, it's sort
1: of establishing like a conspiratorial um, friendship. Uh, number six is never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown.
0: Number seven is never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you eventually.
1: Number eight is never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Number nine is never be untidy. And number 10 is never get drunk. Uh, so keep your wits about you and go along with everything the mark says. <laughs> Uh It's sort of as just a personal semi-hilarious coda to all of this. I did not know this before I started working on research for this episode. And I didn't actually realize it until I was almost done putting all my notes together. But there was an episode of Chesterfield Presents, which was like this half hour drama uh that Chesterfield Cigarettes sponsored that was made about Lustig in 1952. And it was called Count Victor Lustig, the Fabulous Swindler. And what makes it personally funny is that it starred Vincent Price, (laughs) who starred in The Baron of Arizona, which is the other Swindler episode that we have done recently. I did not mean to do uh, the Vincent Price follies of con men, but it happened accidentally. So
0: Now I want to see what other episodes... We can find that will tie to Vincent Price.
1: Oh, I could do that easy. <laughs> I could do a lot of Vincent Price inspired episodes. Well, because he was such a prolific actor, you know, he was in everything. Hundreds and hundreds of credits. So, but instead we're going to go to listener mail. This particular piece is from our listener Sabrina, uh, and it is about our Fille du Roi episode. And she says, Hi ladies, I just listened to your show on Les Filles du Roy, and I was really surprised you didn't mention the casquette girls. Uh, so-called because of the small chests that they brought from France of the Gulf area. The Fiat Cassette arrived in Mobile, Alabama, starting in 1704, then Biloxi, Mississippi, and finally New Orleans. They were brought to the U.S. for the same reasons as the Canadians to marry. Uh, I heard about these girls on the show, The Originals, last season and looked them up, and it was real. Uh, New Orleans lore is that they brought vampires to the area, which was, of course, played as fact in the show. The fact that many of the girls were sickly and gaunt by the time they reached the colony, is why the vampire story ran rampant. Anyway, thanks for the show. I didn't mention them, one, because it happened kind of after the Fi du Hoa. I had heard of them, but I didn't know a ton about them. And also, unlike uh, the Fi du Hua, which was uh, like a royal decree that was a, a whole French government uh set up. This, my understanding is that it was kind of like a private enterprise. Like it wasn't a, a big government sanctioned effort. Um but it is fascinating. They're also I haven't found as much information on them. I would certainly love to. Uh but that's another good story to think about is uh, you'll sometimes just see them listed as the casket girls, uh which makes it seem like a whole other thing and ties into that whole vampirism, the uh, secondary backstory and lore. But that's the scoop on that. Uh, so thank you, Sabrina we always love a good tie-in. Uh, if you would like to write to us, if you know any tie-ins about Victor Lustig, I'm sure there are kajillions of them out there. Uh, you can write to us at history podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash history, On Twitter at Missed in history. We're at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com or also at Pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to uh, connect with us on our website, it's mistinhistory.com. And if you If you'd like to learn more about uh, what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site and type in the words con man in the search bar and you will come up with an article called How Con Artists Work, which talks about kind of some of these same confidence games that Lustig was so extremely adept at. If you want to research almost anything else, you can do that at our parent website which is howstuffworks.com and if you want to come and visit us at mistinhistory.com you should do that as well.